This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl I think also there is something really nice when you are uh, scrolling with the touchpad through your map. When we don't see the whole map in one go and you're kind of moving through it. Something nice happens on the screen. I, I like that. <laughs> okay, back to wood and pragmatics and coffee. <laughs> okay. Cornelia speaking, Cornelia speaking. Hi, Sophie. What a nice morning. Uh, I hope this time the fire really works out and we can actually have a, well, a fire and then maybe warmth. <laughs> that we don't freeze through this conversation completely. Uh, a, a Sunday morning conversation with you, Cornelia. Welcome. And we are in the, in the cargo load of uh, Heimatland a boat that was initially uh, baptized Ida in 1910, so she's 111 years old, and she's docked here to the Fisher Insel. And this morning as we walked uh, onto the boat, we nearly slipped because there was actually frost on the deck. And uh, our wonderful host, Pietro Hocek, who gave the name to Hocek Contemporary, this residency that the boat uh, accommodates, somehow wasn't here this morning, so we had to put on the fire, and uh, it already went off twice because it's just so cold but right now it's looking pretty good we just left it open <laughs> we're smoking ourselves in <laughs> but the coffee's steaming the oven is on and uh, there's a wonderful big projection of one of the one of your future scenarios for the mental health organization that we're going to be talking about on the screen so here we go <laughs> Welcome back, dear listeners. You've tuned in to our new episode called Fluid Selves, Fluid Berlin. It's an episode in which we search for fluid ways of being and fluid identities here in Berlin, whatever that may mean to, to different persons. Um, we also ask whether Berlin is as fluid as we think it is. Um, Berlin, a city which was once divided in two parts, east and west by a wall, Everybody knows about this, but also a city where in the Weimar uh, Republic period, a lot of liberation took place, uh, um, among others also on the, on the, in terms of sexuality, with the first uh, research institute for sexuality here in, uh, in Berlin. And we are wondering with Eric Wong if we can find a more fluid notion of self here in Berlin and how that can then... Um, also help us think of another fluid, more fluid form of urbanism. That's what we're looking for here. And my name is Sophie Krier, and with me today is Cornelia Dimitrova. As an architectural researcher, uh, Cornelia, you co-founded Foundation We Are, a collective of nine creative minds and makers. And Eric and I had a warming up talk in fall 2020, so exactly a year ago, with you and Bernard Langer. Langer. Um, and the warming up talk was about avoiding assumptions, was kind of the title we gave to it. Um, but today we will be focusing on your own practice, with which you help care organizations to address spatial and architectural challenges. Um, and you do this by 
imagining and visualizing, kind of projecting yourself in their possible futures and possible future scenarios of use for these places. Um, and between 2018 and, and 2020, uh, you, uh, as part of your professional doctorate in engineering at T TU Eindhoven, you developed a strate strategic vision for the Grote Beek Estate, so the GGZ in Eindhoven, um, this one being one of the largest mental health care institutions uh, in the Netherlands, um, and it will be the focus of our talk. You bundled uh, your proposals in the playbook for healing environments that's sitting between us here. Um, it's an intrigu intriguing fusion of a, a roadmap, an archive, uh, a research. Um, it's also actually only one part of your research because yesterday when you shared your research uh, with the rest of the group, you mentioned the atlas, which we only see a tip of the iceberg of that atlas in this book. So there's much more behind it. Um, and this conversation will have three parts. And I would just like to start with the here and now, uh, uh, how you feel this morning. It's uh, day three of our pluriversal gathering here in, in Berlin. How have things been to you? And uh, yeah, how have things been for you? And where are you at? Nice question. I'm all right. I'm good. I'm well. I am where I should be, I think going in the direction that feels right. That's something I discovered actually on the first day when we had the whole uh, performative exploration provided to us by uh, Sabine. It felt like, yep, there's, there's clarity, there's stability in, in what I'm doing. I feel very happy to be part of this experience with you. I think if I'm so impressed at how fixed and fluid it is at the same time because I constantly saw you and Eric of course adapting and kind of it felt like we were on a sailing boat and not on a train which is very nice I like that I like when things work in that way well that, that's good to that's good to know when we first invited you uh, Cornelia I remember I called you to kind of explain what we would be doing uh, in these few days. And uh, you said that you had a certain image of what might be happening. Do you remember that mm -hmm. image? Can you, can you recall it for our listeners? Sure. Um, I just imagined us laying down on a floor in a beautiful space, perhaps a beautiful floor. Not doesn't didn't have to be a luxurious one, but yeah, the type of floor, like the one behind us, for instance, which invites you to take off your shoes and explore how slippery your socks could be. Or a floor like that, a floor which makes a suggestion. Um, and then that we would lay down on that floor and look at the ceiling, which we haven't done so far, but we did a whole bunch of other things which, which uh, fit within that category of uh, informal use of spaces. And um, Eric and I, we were wondering how you actually arrived at this uh, fascination for care and uh, practices of care um, in your life, in your life journey, let's say. Um, you are initially from Bulgaria. You moved to Eindhoven to study, I think, uh, and you lived there ever since. Um, how, has, how has that journey been for you? For example, I was looking at a work, an early work of yours uh, for Foundation We Are. I think the first thing you did for the foundation was a wall 
with a cutout window. And there's a little model, of, a picture of a skill model of that on your on your website. And uh, you wrote uh, with that wall, you wrote, does law become a tool of discrimination? 2016, you made this little skill model with that writing. Um, so here you were, I guess, concerned with law as a tool of exclusion. And now with your uh, work on, on the Mental Health uh, Institute, the GGZD, you are actually working more on notions also of inclusion, I have the feeling. So I'm wondering how that shifts. If you can see what happened, like how you moved from your initial concern in human rights to now this in incredible research that you've done into what does it mean to heal? And um, it's very related, but I'm interested in that shift. Yeah. What... Um, <clears throat> What interests me is this awareness that the frameworks, society, the constitution, the laws, the customs, these are essentially agreements or frameworks which we have designed and they have very real and tangible consequences on the ground, on us, on everyone, within the, the boundary of, of that framework. Where those rules apply, there will be consequences. Um, and while with that first um, that first project was a way for me to kind of grasp the space as actually a translation of these frameworks, it was in itself just a, a small... Uh, it didn't go anywhere further, but it was something which just suddenly crystallized and made sense for me. And then, of course over-focusing on the frameworks of exclusion didn't make sense, though, because I'm more curious about how we will live together um, within these changing conditions with each other. And I think by doing this research on sustainability and mental health, I realized that empathy and, and being able to relate and to care is something which is actually powerful on both sides. We will never do anything for the ocean's uh, acidification if we don't care. And it's very hard to care for something which we don't understand um, and something which doesn't belong to us. We couldn't possibly live underwater. We would have to construct frameworks and spaces to facilitate that. Um, but what can we do within the world that we have in our hands? So this is, this is what I was interested in, actually. Building for a hopeful future, I hope. Yeah. You mentioned this intersection between um, mental, bodily health and the exhaustion of the planet. You also wrote an article about that on, on Arginet. It's online. Uh, we will add the link for our listeners so they can go and have a look at it. Um, in that article, you also pinpointed something that I was interested in about, that there is a kind of contamination of words between those two practices, right? There, is a, there are words like resilience that are used, uh, that, was, that actually come from psychiatry and mental health, but have kind of spilled over into ecology, meaning a different thing or being used in, in a different also time frame and things like that. Um, and I was wondering, because you wrote that article kind of at the end also of your whole research on um, on this mental health organization. So are there other words that you also um, 
that for you are, are really interesting in terms of that they exist in both spheres? I would think words like stress or adaptation. Um, mitigation, not so much, but certainly when a stressful event has happened, you can either adapt or mitigate. Or um, I think the, simply the techniques, for example, also, you know, sharing a pressure or sharing a, um, notions of abundance, for instance, have a role both psychologically and ecologically. Scarcity. Um, Poverty, I guess, diversity. There are so many words which carry um, a meaning in understanding the ecosystem that we're in, but also the social system that we're in, but also our own minds. It really feels like systems that exist at different scales, but they're just as complex as each other. And what I became curious about was how can we, because yes, the, the obvious relationship between mental health and ecology and the environment is the fact that a lot of people do get scared, stressed, um, desensitized. It suddenly stops hurting when you hear that uh, more and more whales get beached and so on. It stops disturbing us. And sometimes it is so disturbing that you just want to lay down on the floor, curl up in a bowl and maybe cry. Because what else can you do in the face of something so huge? Um, so there is that correlation between mental health and, and uh, the environment. But then there's the other one, which is where I think we can as a designer, I am curious what agency I can find, what ways of looking at the world. And by finding that parallel, it played a role in how I shaped the mapping and my analysis of the uh, Grote Beek. And it shaped, of course, how I projected its future. Yeah. Let's dive in the, in the Grote Beek. Let's take our listeners uh, there. So it's, it's an estate. Um, quite big, 117 hectares? At, or 125. It depends where you draw the boundary. Do you draw it around the private property, which is the estate? Do you draw it on the sort of natural property, which is between the edges of concrete or asphalt, which are the streets around it? Uh, but somewhere between 117 and 125, yeah. It's, um, it's partly... Uh, since the fences have been taken off, uh, it's partly a park. It's in the north of Eindhoven, of the city of Eindhoven. 2,000 staff, more or less, 13,000 patients in different departments, mm. youth, child care, elderly care, forensic care. Um, you mention in the playbook uh, that the city's ambition is to turn this park into Eindhoven's central park. Is that like a branding thing? or uh, It sounds... I'm not sure that sounds like a good future scenario for this place. The, the research started with um, four intentions which the management has set for the, the park. 
and it has something to do with it's, it's a large organization as you said and it has a huge impact and it is also an example for other smaller organizations in this sector and it's a, I think it's a responsibility or it's a kind of scale that they recognize or perhaps the director recognizes um, and at that scale there is a lot that can be done so there is also this need to test how much is too much in terms of what you want to do and what you want to give to the world and the city where you're based in. The notion of Central Park, <clears throat> it just really depends how you understand it. Um, I don't think that it is necessarily about the specific shape and the kind of formal copying, although it does remind you when you see this patch of green surrounded by a which was reserved as a site, and then actually the city grew around it, right? So there is a similarity, um, well, in the style of the landscape, certain parts do remind you of Central Park. Um, but it is, it is more about the meeting of different communities and the finding of different uses, and the fact that it is large enough and perhaps diverse enough to offer something for everyone. And I think that, if you mirror that to the mental health sector as what it wants to do, it wants to help people sooner uh, before it is too late, then perhaps the metaphor is not that useless. Perhaps it is actually quite a, yeah, quite a useful frame to think of. And you've um, described a healing environment as making space for space and time for inclusion, learning and adaptation. Um, yesterday also uh, when we were sharing one of the points you made again is that we somehow um, we know what it takes for a body to transform and heal or a, a, a mental health process to, to transform but somehow we, uh, we still kind of use other time frames when we think about the transformation of a place or a city or we have this kind of project oriented um, way of thinking and uh, in the reader that we made Eric and I for this uh, for this session uh, at some point someone is quoted who says that project thinking kind of amputates the future somehow you know it's sort of it, it like frames too much the future so that it amputates possibilities of becoming of, of the future or something like this. Um, I was wondering if, if you, because you developed uh, in this playbook four time frames yourself, you took that really as a basic structure. What can we do right now? What can we do in a couple of weeks? What can we do in a couple of months? What can we do in a couple of years or even in a decade or so? Mm -hmm. uh, which is, I think, very freeing because it, you, it, allows, it makes room to start right now with a couple of small things that you can just do without huge investments or huge policy changes or things like that. It's nice, I think, if you would take our, uh, our listeners, um, and we can do this quite fast, but if we would uh, go a little bit through these different time frames, and if you can give us a couple of examples of the propositions you made for each time frame. So... Um. Traffic. Traffic is a huge problem. 
not in the fact that there is pollution. Yes, there is pollution, but there are ways to offset that. More in the fact that whether you drive or you walk really defines what your role is in the larger landscape. Pretty much if you, under, under some mental health conditions, you might need to take medications with which you're not allowed to drive. Being in a car, being behind a wheel means that whoever you are, you're an independent person. Um, you're not a mental health patient. So, so that makes a very visible boundary. As you walk on the site, <clears throat> you're always crossing the roads. So it is a landscape for cars. And cars are needed for this large organization to do its work. But cars and roads are not part of a healing environment. They're not part of a landscape. What can you do with that? You could reconstruct your road network and take a few years to do it and disturb everything along the way. But you could also stop using those roads for that purpose, reassign the meaning, block them, make them inaccessible. How to do it? A shopping list. Everything which is proposed in the time frame of uh, what can you do in a few weeks is essentially based on objects you could buy and you could use in a certain way to create a certain immediate effect. So you could say, well, we block the road, communicate to everyone, this will be the main road that we're testing because we're looking for that one road. We don't want to have a grid. We don't want to feel like we're in a city. One road that helps us do our job. So let's block parts of it. Let's see what happens. If people hate it, you will see it. If people love it, you will see it. Um, water taps. It is uh, a, a park, it is a nature park, but it is within the city, so that means there's a water grid going under it. So you could actually connect water taps to at least 10 points, and that makes it easier to stay longer. And what is a water tap? It's something so simple. But if you can hydrate, you could stay longer. Uh, make a set of bathrooms available for, for the public, right? Make it possible to stay there longer. Make it clear that you are welcome here. Yeah. Uh, make it safe to be there. Make it easily navigatable, right? Demarcate a, a simple poles or flags would already suggest a route that helps you both see the diversity in the forests and in case you've never been to the certain area, it helps you explore it because it leads you in. If there is a path in, there must be a path out, right? So it lowers the threshold of exploring the park. Yeah. And this phase of the weeks, you call it fine-tuning fine and, and connecting. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the kind of theme you gave it. The next phase that you've uh, proposed is what you can do in a couple of months. And that one uh, you've named engage and initiate. Um, so another set of words and the temporary settings that you've proposed for that are things like an outdoor cinema, but also the possibility of starting up partnerships. In a couple of months, you can also start up partnerships. Um, forest bathing decks you proposed for parts of the forest to really um, immerse yourself in it, uh, but also the self-care market, in which there is a part, I think, where you really come in as a designer because you propose a, a structure for the self-care market. And then you propose uh, programs for it. Yeah. Do you want to say something about this, the self-care market and your idea about it, and maybe also how it was received on the other end by the, 
by the board to whom you, you proposed these, uh, these proposals? So it was um, an idea, something I observed during the analysis is that there is a close relationship between how the space evolves and the activities in the events which take place there. And certain activities and events really have so much power and gravity that it triggers the, um, the improvement of a certain area, which makes it then usable later on for the people who will stay behind after the event. And I thought, well, this is, a, this is a mechanism which has to stay in the future. It shouldn't be that everything they do from now on will be a clear-cut plan. But what is a way to combine this short-term effort with a more long-term effort? And that is where it seemed like a great tool to test programs. So there is an issue with boredom. In what way can we deal with it? Playing games, sports? Um, going to the cinema, meeting each other for a coffee, creating really spaces for, for everyday life, normal everyday life. This is, this is why that space is boring for them, because they lack everyday infrastructure. And with events, you could actually boost it and bring it on there and let it linger for three to six months. And you see if this is a good thing to keep. And if it's not, you can dismantle it, sell it, move it somewhere else, rent it out. It is still an object which is useful. But, but um, so the self-care market, the structure you propose for it is kind of like the skeleton of a barn, you could say, um, in which you can hang banners or you can install mirrors and some seats and then you get a kind of temporary hairdressing setting or you can put tables and, and there and you have a second-hand uh, clothing market. Why, you could have called it the care market, but, but you called it the self-care market. That's what I'm interested in, how that notion of self-care or maybe being in charge of your own healing process. Um, yeah, what was your idea behind that? And is it based also on, for example, evolutions in the whole uh, psychiatry uh, field? Because um, there have been so many evolutions in that in terms of how we look at uh, mental health, at diseases, at um, res the resilience of the individual, of the collective, of the group, things like that. W why self-care? I'm, I'm very interested in, in that. And, and then how then you as a designer um, propose to, to design a setting where that becomes possible, right? To, to take that self-care in your own hands. The, this is one aspect of... Um, a larger picture, specifically exactly what you said, how mental health and well-being and recovery or therapy works. And from the way I see it, of course, from the bench of an architect um, or a designer, is that there's something to be said about patterns of behavior. There's something to be said about relationships. There's something to be said about relationship with yourself, with others, with materiality, with spirituality and so on, uh, with places. And all of these relationships form who you are. This is, this is how you've grown. And sometimes it happens that one or more of these could, be, could have been a bit dysfunctional or not ideal, which has triggered how you end up 
in such a space as the Grote Beek. Um, it really, part, a big part of the analysis was understanding what kind of people are in which departments. How did they end up here? What happened to them? And what is the way forward in a realistic way? And something which the director said, uh, mostly we can't heal people. This doesn't exist. The only thing we can help them is to help them manage it. Um, standing up and going to a hairdresser's when you haven't done that in a year or more is one way of taking agency, taking control back, having that independence, giving yourself something. Confidence, care, appreciation. Um, this idea of the cinema really comes more from the point of view of narratives. What kind of story do you tell yourself? <clears throat> and there are a lot of movies and um, stories which powerfully tell experiences under grave uh, circumstances. And that resilience, those stories of resilience are worth telling again and again. Um, and perhaps that inspires someone to change the story that they tell themselves or of themselves. Mm -hmm. um, the sport, just being active, being in touch with each other. It's a completely different way of interacting if you play volleyball with someone. It's a different kind of conversation. Um, just moving through space. All of this, everything had to do, but specifically self-care. And I put it in the center as an event, as a kind of boost where it would lower the threshold and it would make it just accessible suddenly for everyone. Uh, and we're all you, going there in a line. Yeah. You place it in the center, um, I think in front of the first building, right, of the institute, one of the oldest buildings. It's or next not. to the chapel, yeah, it's one of the original buildings. What can we do in a couple of years? Um, you've really uh, thought here that what is important to think about in years, uh, once you've adapted your annual programs, is also to think of the intersections between the institution, the landscape and the community. So it's interesting that in a few weeks what you can do is explore better the area, actually. That's what you, you mentioned. In a couple of months you can maybe already change also the agency that the users of the area have and the way they use it. And then in a couple of years, you can actually at another level start to think how then at a larger, at a bigger scale, we can think of new intersections and new partnerships that would support, right, what, what, is, what is happening on, on the ground. Uh, what is an example for you of, um, like if you would have to choose from everything you propose, because the playbook is full of proposals, But you'd, if you'd have to choose one thing that you really hope will actually be uh, realized, uh, which one would you which one would you pick? I can't. I can't pick. Um, let me flip through the book and see if there's something which I immediately think if they don't do this, they're crazy. And while you flip through the book, I'm going to add some wood. <laughs> because we're warming up, but at the same time, it needs a new wood. Do, do you want a bit of coffee too? Last... Oh yeah, sure. Last hot, hot drop.
There are really two things that I would be that would have a, a big impact, I think, on how people live there and how people see such spaces. One is it, it concerns really everyday life. It concerns notions such as it is getting warmer. We feel that it's getting warmer, which keeps people indoors also in the summer. So they stay indoors in the winter and now they're staying indoors in the summer, which means there's a tiny window of the spring and the autumn period when you start going out. And it is essential that you go out to breathe fresh air, that you take a walk. And one way of mediating this is creating this kind of canopies and these intermediate spaces. Because what you have at the moment is this very harsh boundary between the buildings and kind of the community spaces which are within them. And as soon as the working hours are done, and those doors are locked, you're alone, you're essentially outside. Um, and I think it would be interesting if they would more actively explore these intermediate kind of spaces. Um, something we're working on now is uh, a place called the Butterfly Garden, and we're building an outdoor meeting area, which is essentially a kind of tented roof with a table that you can stand around. Um, and it becomes a space, right? When it's raining, it actually becomes a shelter. When it's too sunny, it becomes a shelter. So it will evolve around that uh, comfort which it offers. Mm -hmm. So they become, in a sense, sort of autonomous shelters, which don't depend on the opening hours of the institution, of, of the staff, where you mm -hmm. could always go to. And on Friday evening, we were at this meeting organized um, by... Uh, NGBK uh, at the Werkstatt um, near Alexanderplatz and it was about who makes the city um, who has the right to the city and now that you say this it makes me think of yeah, who runs this place and who lives there are of course uh, different <laughs> different groups of persons and how do you then uh, how do you then negotiate like the, the needs of both both groups and how can the architectural space facilitate that in a way, instead of um, creating more boundaries, maybe. There's who runs it, but there's also who operates it, right? These are all the staff that are there during the day or during the night or for emergency cases or for everyday conversations. And then there are the people who are relying on... Uh, that this interaction that this period will give them a way to feel better. Let's let's um, let's move forward and uh, and really dream ahead uh, a decade from now. So the the year that you've included in the playbook is 2035. Mm. It's about 12, 13, 14 years from now. Um, and uh, we ha we have on the on the projection. Uh, well, we don't because the projector went to sleep. But on the pro on the screen just before, there was a uh, uh, an image of a map that you've made, and you you make collages. But you also I don't know if you use Photoshop for this, but you you work a lot in these kind of existing images of the place to propose possible images of possible future images of this place to kind of project ourselves, I guess, into what could happen. And one of the things you did is um, there is a railroad that is uh, border bounding 
there's a boundary on one side and of course the road on the other but you've made the whole railroad uh, green you've greened it up you've taken out you've decommissioned the electricity poles that are um, uh, crossing the terrain um, it seems that there is also more water in the area so is for you when you think of 15 years from now knowing how long this space also has existed right the first buildings i think you mentioned were from 1914 so so 2035 it's like 100 and uh, 115 years old then it will be this this place what is the what is the main um what is the main thing that is important for you there in terms of the direction that should be taken for this for this piece of earth here what like what what is for you the main focus 15 years from now it should continue developing i think is a space for all kinds of well-being mostly mental well-being but also physical it shouldn't i think the the boundary between patient, non-patient, client, non-client will blur um, simply at the scale of this institution. You know, in the beginning of my research, I talked to so many people that I would meet at bars and so on, and I would mention this organization or this place, and they have either themselves been a client or they know somebody who's been a client or who is a client, right? And, yeah, it's simply being connected to that, to that place through people and not through stigmatization, I think means that uh, it should offer something for everyone, right? Something which they are at the moment really thinking about is how can it be a welcoming place for the families of the people who are staying there? So by destigmatizing the landscape, by making the park be a welcoming place where you could enjoy yourself, rest, meditate and so on, by destigmatizing the space, you also destigmatize the group and you also destigmatize the service, which is what is actually the big goal here. Yeah. Uh, not that everyone should enroll and be a patient, but a certain amount of awareness, such as, did you ever know that there is a course called Mental Health First Aid? I didn't until I met them. Um, and I signed up and I followed that course. And I learned a lot. Um, and it actually has changed how I see people now, or how I respond in situations. It has helped me build my capacity to care in a more appropriate ways, let's say, and not to kind of impose myself in... Yeah. Or, or get scared and, and, and run off, or, right. or have assumptions, or categorize persons with, indeed, uh, another way of being in the world as, as other or something like that. And um, this idea of the place being hospitable to, to all or to as many beings as possible, you also extended it to non-humans. You had a plan for the electricity towers. You want to, because that's a very, it's a nice one to imagine for our listener, listeners. <laughs> and you're, you're now flipping through the book and you're looking at the image of it. What do we see in this image? <coughs> we see um, an electricity pole from the very typical ones uh, that look like a, like a frame standing on four legs and then there are kind of two 
layers of arms <laughs> where the cables hang on uh, currently. Um, nothing is permanent. The role of this image is to actually remind them that nothing is permanent and nature always finds a way to, to deal with things. Something I come, came to realize during my graduation project was that it is either food or topography. That's it. It's either a surface you can grow on or hide under, or it's something you can eat and digest and then somebody else eats it after you and so on. <laughs> this is really how simple the material world is. Um, so I don't believe anyone will eat a decommissioned, well, you know, um, metal scrap recycling facility might eat it in its own way. But if you keep that structure, which at the moment causes a lot of stress and, and fear to some people because the notion of 150,000 volts is unfathomable, but scary. So what could you do with those things, right? If you say we're going to remove this discomfort from the landscape, um, but we will keep the memory of it as something we have managed to overcome. So what could it become? Well, it could fuse with that healing environment at the level of biodiversity, um, right? You could install uh, boxes on it, which birds might eventually recognize as potential homes. Um, you could use the different heights to offer different types of nesting possibilities and to see which kind of birds actually uh, are there. Um, and we know enough about birds to know that some prefer to nest in the ground and some prefer to nest in the trees and some prefer to nest even higher up. So perhaps this would work. Perhaps this is a, a good way to keep this structure there, but give it a radically different role in the landscape. When you handed over this, this playbook that you've been working on all these years, your role is shifting then, right? From a researcher, you're now kind of uh, shifting to the role of an advisor more, or how would you describe the role you're taking on now in this in this phase of kind of handing over those those proposals in and do you encounter any dilemmas also in handing because you came up with so many beautiful proposals I can imagine it's not that easy also to sort of let go of them then while I made those proposals with the idea of these are projects they could start working on and I could just give them the book and perhaps I'll come back in a year and uh, see some nice things they have done the request to have the book made in Dutch um, was followed by other requests to do other things. So I have, at the moment, answered a variety of questions that came from them. At one point, I uh, helped them choose the color of a pergola, which is, <laughs> I think, has been repainted already. Um, but I've also talked with them about, you know, how or why a certain place is changing or how to tell a story of that path so it becomes more accessible. So I've taken different roles and I still don't know what is the agency of the images. Some images I know they want to use as images to say, this is what you can do in our beautiful landscape. Well, this one uh, where there's a woman laying on a tree in the forest, that is the cover of the Wandelgit of the park, which I made for them this summer. For example, so that will be an image that will go everywhere, even though I haven't actually <laughs> designed anything on it. I just assigned meaning to an object which already exists in the forest. Yeah, you combined, it's a collage where there is um, 
stock photography, I think, of a, of a woman lying, but on a kind of big stump of tree. And she seems to be really enjoying <laughs> lying on this big trunk and looking up at the treetops, right? It's that image, I think. It's that image, yeah. yeah. So it's something that actually does not exist. It's an imagined use because the, the tree trunk is there, um, but nobody's using it in this way. Something else is that just the images have changed because because of how I constructed them, what you explained, that they're, I chose specific views that would be recognizable and I just changed them, changed the meaning of the place by adding a bathhouse next to the pond where at the moment you see horses uh, go around. You reassign the meaning. People almost, they ask, is that really, is that really that pond? Oh, how interesting, yes. Oh, and look how open it is here. Is it really that open? I'm like, no, there's a fence. I removed the fence so that it would, yeah, be open. But it changes. I see how it has changed how they see the landscape, some, some people. Uh, and sometimes I get feedback of, no, this is impossible. We'll never do this. Uh, this is a risk of suicide, for instance. Because one of the ideas for the, of how to use the, the cable towers in the future was exactly this kind of climbing viewing tower. And that is something which opens a conversation, but it is also very a hard line, which is hard to cross. Mm. So by making those images, I also got to know them better by seeing how they react to certain things. And maybe a, a very last question. Mm. At the end of these uh, three days here with us <laughs> in Berlin, in, in search of, of fluidity here, is there for you a kind of uh, new understanding maybe of also the role that fluidity can play in healing environments? Because that's, that's your focus and that's your, your research focus. Just being here and experiencing uh, what we did with Sabine and hearing also the story of Tomas, just meeting each other and moving and talking together has definitely inspired me to, to continue exploring more the agency, not only of a static image, but perhaps of a, of a ritual or of an event of to actually explore in what way, even mapping the space. You know, I was always sitting down, the way I was drawing those maps, I was always sitting down and talking to someone, but what if we would walk through the space, right? What if there would be a score of- Dance, dance through the space. <laughs> what if we would dance through the space, yes. With a kind of GPS thing on our ankles. And, uh, you know, then you kind of download this map and we've drawn a line of that route. And then you correlate that to pictures we took or to notes we took. And so that would be a more literal way of mapping the space. I think the way you talk also about the images being supports for conversations and, uh, and uh, exchanging ideas of what is possible and not possible, that's a very productive way, I think, to use collages. Uh, not as this is what the future is supposed to be, but um, how do we feel about uh, how do we feel about it if this was a possible future, let's say? Is it a possible future? Is it a desirable future? Is it a shared future? Um, 
the answer, a clear answer any, on any one of these questions already gives you, takes you a step further towards finding a common future, which is what we want, mm -hmm. which is what is needed, I think. Can listeners follow you somewhere? You have a website, of course. Um, your book is going to be out, right? You set up a web shop? Yes. I just set up a web shop a few days ago, which is uh, on my website, kodimitrova.com slash playbook. Um, and you could order it, or you could see the essential summary. And if anything comes up, I want to know. Thank you so much. In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Traveling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Institute in close partnership with the Consulate General in Istanbul and embassies in Germany, Morocco, Spain and the UK. The Traveling Academy brings together makers from these regions and the Netherlands to learn how formal and informal ways of knowing can support each other in tackling ecological, sociopolitical and spatial issues.